The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewired.com. Happy Father's Day. I appreciate that. Thanks. As we have had this time where we're just in the spirit of repentance and listening to that prayer and thinking about all that our hearts have been stirred to think about, there may be in some of us here today this feeling of, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I'm praying those prayers. Yeah, I feel. And we just... Right now, you're probably just wearing, like, this is a heavy service. I have this guilt on me now and this shame. Like, stirred up all those deficiencies of my life. And, yeah, I'm bringing it to you, God. And, and it's like, thank you. Happy Father's Day. You know, like, you're just feeling like that. But, man, I want you to listen as I read about the Father you just prayed to. Listen to this passage. This is out of Luke chapter 15. This is a a parable that Jesus spoke, and it gives us insight into our Heavenly Father. Starting in verse 20, it says, And he arose and came to his father. This is the young man who had gone off and lived his life just recklessly spent all of his money, just burned through life as fast as he could. He was a candle burning at both ends, and he gets to the end of himself, and he's like, what am I doing here? I'm in this place, and I have a dad back home who, well, at least he'll have some mercy on me. I should just go and go back. And so he says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Like dad is hugging him. He's just like, dad, yeah, thank Yeah, but dad, you don't know. I can't, I don't even want to tell you the things I've done. I've sinned against you in heaven. I'm not even... You shouldn't even call me son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. As you prayed, that's the father you were praying to, the one who just said, welcome home, welcome back. Let me put a robe on you and a ring on your hand and shoes on your feet. He let me worship God in heaven that we were together. God worshiping God. (laughs) I'm I'm getting excited. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is the father we're praying to. We're we're saying, Father, forgive us. And he says, yes, you're forgiven. Come, be with me. And I love this because he says, let's celebrate. When we come with a repentant heart, when we come before him, there's celebration. We're restoring the relationship that was severed, that was broken, that sin had gotten in the way of. He's, He's rejoicing that you would come. So, like, this shouldn't be a heavy service. Like, this should be a light, hallelujah, praise God service. Why? Because I have just unloaded my burden. I have come to the Father, and he said, son, welcome home. Welcome back. Let us celebrate and rejoice. You were far off, but now we're close together again. All of that stuff that you were carrying, I have just wiped it away. Come and be with me. Come and live with me. Walk with me. Let me clothe you in grace and mercy. That's what Father's Day is. Like we think about Father's Day, it should emulate the Father in heaven. That is our Father. So men, 
We got, a, we got a tall order to try to live up to. But you know what? He wants us to live up to it. Why? He's in our corner. He's on our side. He's saying, come be with me. Let me transform you. Let me make you like me. May grace and mercy pour out of you men today. May it pour out of all of us who have repented as we were praying those prayers. I just think about this passage. And it's just, oh, so often our identity gets so mashed up and we live in the old stuff. We live in what has happened or what we have done or who we think we are. God says, no, you're something else. If you've come to me, you're my child. You are something else. You're a new man, a new woman, a new creation. Come and walk in that. And God wants that for you. Do you think God just is like, Oh, he's waiting for me to screw up in heaven. No, he's saying, I'm waiting for you to repent and come be with me so we can have the fullness of life. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundant. That's what you should be experiencing on Father's Day, the abundant life of the Heavenly Father because you are walking with him. So happy Father's Day. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to Revelation chapter 2. And a lot of what we've been singing and talking about and praying about goes right with the church in Smyrna. So if you would, just bow your head for a moment while I, while I pray, and, and then we'll transition to our passage of Revelation. Father, you are so good. You love us with an eternal, steadfast love that we don't deserve. It says in the scriptures, Father, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You came for us. You sought us. While we were a long way off, you ran after us. And all that have come to you, you have made them sons and daughters. And if we are sons and daughters, indeed, we are. So, Father, we rejoice this morning for how good you are. There is no mountain too high, no valley too low, nothing that separates, nothing that comes between. You are God and you are good. And that is on display through the sun, through the cross, through your grace, your mercy, through the new birth that you give us, the new identity that we now have. Father, you are to be praised in heaven. The one who is above all things, sovereign and having all authority and all power. You who are majestic and mysterious in your ways. You condescend to us. You love us. You call us to yourself. You give us a relationship. We worship you. We worship you for, for the new life that is only found in Christ, that forgiveness that comes only through him. What a great Father's Day. We celebrate you, our Heavenly Father. We celebrate your goodness towards us, your mercy towards us, your love towards us. We celebrate that because Christ has been poured out in our hearts and the Spirit has been poured out into our hearts, we can look at you and say, Abba, Daddy, and you receive us. So may we continue to glorify you as we hear from you in the scriptures, as we look at this, this prophetic word in Revelation. God, I just pray that as we look at it, you would help us to walk in the fullness of Jesus that you would be glorified and our joy would be made full no matter the circumstances. We pray in the Son's name, Christ Jesus. Amen. Somebody blessed me. Had my eyes closed. Were you hearing that? In my mic? Is that what it was? Somebody's like, that guy needs water. <laughs> I'm not listening to that all service. I appreciate your kindness, whoever it was. So You don't have to tell me. Don't let the right hand know what the left's doing. I appreciate it. Revelation chapter 2. 
We're looking at the church of Smyrna, and it's just a few chapters, and I am going to ask you to read it with me. Usually I have someone up here reading our passage. Today, you get to read the passage. So as I start, will you read along with me? Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Jesus, as he's speaking to the churches in Revelation, he identifies himself, and he does it in different ways. And so we saw at the beginning here when he talks to the church of Ephesus, he talks about himself who holds the seven stars and who walks among the lampstands. But then when he talks to the church at Smyrna, he says something a little bit different. And all of this comes from the big picture that John gave us in chapter one when he says, I saw one like a son of man, and he describes Jesus. So now Jesus is speaking about who he is to the churches, and he's speaking very directly about certain parts of his character because they need to see that. They need to be fortified in that. They need to be strengthened there. So he's, he's not just saying, this is who I am only, but he's saying, this is who I am for you in this moment. You need this part of me. I'm so much more, but don't lose sight of this. So what does he say to Smyrna? He says to the angel of the church of Smyrna, he says that, write these words, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So he says, I am the first and the last. Now, this is a, a statement that speaks of Jesus's eternal nature. Now, there's a lot of different people who have a different Jesus. They may claim to be Christian or evangelical, wear those labels, and they'll say, well, no, Jesus wasn't eternal, or Jesus is only created, but he's maybe God of this world or something. They have a different view of Jesus. No, Jesus here says, I am the first and the last. He's eternal in nature. But this statement of who he is is significant because he is equating himself to God of the Old Testament too. He is saying, the God you heard of in the Old Testament, that was me, the first and the last. And so we see this in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. It says, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last. I am he. So Jesus is claiming this title, the first and the last, the name of Yahweh, the name of Lord. He says, that is who I am. He says it again in Isaiah 44, verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And again, in Isaiah 48, 12, he says, listen to me, O Jacob, And Israel, whom I called, I am he. I am the first and I am the last. So Jesus is giving a name, identifying himself as God Almighty, the eternal God, the one who created all things. All things were created by him, for him, through him. Without him, there is nothing that has been created. All things invisible were created by him. All things are held together in him. He says, I am he, the first and the last. And so if Jesus is not this, if you have a different Jesus than what John is saying, you need to come to Jesus of the Scriptures, the eternal one, the one who can save. There's no other Jesus that saves. Only this Jesus saves. So he claims this name, the first and last. But then he also says to them, I am the one who was dead and came to life. Now, The church needs to remember in this moment that they serve a risen Lord. They're getting ready to hear from him. He knows their their circumstances. We all just read it together. I know your tribulations. I know your poverty. He says, I'm going to talk about that. But before I talk about that, remember who I am. I am the one 
who is resurrected. I am alive. I was the one who came, took on flesh, went to the cross, was killed, and yet was resurrected. The church serves a risen Lord, a victorious Lord, one who reigns over death. Death can't stop him, and it will not stop his people either. Death cannot stop him, and it will not stop his church. You guys are like, okay. (laughs) That's amazing for them to be dwelling on. The church, you and I who confess Christ, who are in Christ, the church together, we have resurrection power through Christ and by the Spirit. John 11, 25 says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Church, we have resurrection power in us. We are alive in Christ. The power of God, the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that lives in you. I can't overcome my circumstances. You can because the power of God rests in you. Those circumstances are not greater than you. They will one day end, but you are eternal. You will go on. They serve a victorious Christ. They serve a God who is risen. They serve one who is the beginning and the end. So he says to them in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. So let's put this in a little bit of context. We need to think about Smyrna for a moment. I'm sure most of us have been there no. It's, it's in modern-day Turkey. Here's a picture of Smyrna today. So you see all the ruins there in the, in the foreground. In the background, going all the way up the hillside and beyond, those, that's the city today. It's very large. It's populated there. But, but in its glory, it was all the way down here where these ruins are. So here's a drawing of what Smyrna probably looked like when John wrote. So you have this beautiful city that stretches all the way to the harbor. You have the trade coming in from Asia going into this city, and then you have this harbor, this port. And so much like Ephesus, there's a lot of trade, stuff coming in, stuff coming out, and it's a very prosperous city. It's a, it's a very wealthy city. Smyrna became a hub of culture, became a hub of learning. It was wealthy as, as I said, because of all this trade, it was also deeply spiritual in pagan worship. It boasted of temples for Apollo and Aphrodite and Zeus and, and several others. And on top of that, it even added emperor worship, that common expression that was found throughout the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord, that began here in 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 Smyrna, where they were given the, the, the joy of building a temple to the Dea Roma, which is the, the goddess of Rome. That was the, the thought of worshiping the spirit, the power of Rome. That then turned into worshiping emperors of their past, which then turned into worshiping their emperors. And that's where we are in this moment of time They're in the middle of emperor worship. They've actually built a temple in that city at this time to Tiberius. And and, and so they have this strong spiritual pagan worship in their culture. Domitian was the first to demand that expression, Caesar is Lord, as a test of political loyalty. And it was during his reign that John is sent to Patmos and is given this revelation. So Jesus says, I know your persecutions and I know your poverty. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means this. It means the church had offended the pagan culture by not affirming it, not affirming their beliefs, not affirming their practices of that day. It gave an offense. And because they said, we will not worship other gods, because we do not live this way, because we do not act this way, because we worship God, Christ and God alone, and we live for him alone, we cannot do this. We will not participate in these things, and you should come and be saved. They're preaching Jesus, and they're preaching against the culture. 
And because of that, they're persecuted. So they are in this persecution. They're slandered. They were slandered by the Jews. The Jews acted toward them much like they did towards Christ. Rejected them. Wanted nothing to do with them. In a very pagan culture, you have the Jews there as well who say, we're not like them. We're tolerant of your pagan religions. We're not going to push against them. You, got, you do you, we'll do us. But these people who claim this Jesus, we're not with them. They're a problem. And they would slander the Christians. They would slander the church, have them arrested, have them thrown in jail for different things, and have them persecuted. They separated themselves, and they said, we're not with them. So what does that mean? That means the church isn't meeting in the synagogue, as is the habit in other regions of the known world. When the Christians would come together, they could go to the synagogue, and they could have their prayers together. They could worship. Not here, not Smyrna. You're not going to meet in this synagogue, because we're not like you. You guys need to be dealt with. You guys are evil. You guys are intolerant. You guys are whatever. Fill in the blank. And so they don't have that place. In fact, it says that their actions and attitudes in our passage are, are said by Jesus himself that they are satanic in their origin. He says, he says, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. He goes on in verse 10 to say, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. So Satan has influenced that culture and these people so much so that this satanic influence is, is moving men to have them thrown in prison, to have them suffer, and even have them killed. This is not of God. This is of the enemy. So this suffering, here we read that there's 10 days, and I believe that this, when it was written to the church in Smyrna, it really probably was a 10-day suffering that was coming. I don't know what those 10 days look like. You know, I'm researching and looking, and it's like everybody's like, best guess, I don't know. You know, but it probably was a literal 10 days that they were going to suffer. Jesus is like, heads up, this persecution is going to keep mounting, and you're going to have a, a moment, a brief moment here of 10 days that's going to be intense. So they're, they're told of this 10 days, and it's going to be significant. But what happened in those 10 days this is what I believe, it marked them. It prepared them for what would be their new normal. <laughs> I mean, think about it. He says, you're going to be persecuted. And in 10 days, you're going to have this great trial. And this church is tested. They're solidified. They're, they're like, are we living for this Jesus or are we not? And at the end of those 10 days, they say, we are. We're living for this Jesus. We're going to give our lives to him. We count the cost and we go after Jesus. They are ready. This is, their, this is the way of life for them. So when John wrote Revelation, <clears throat> I found this to be very interesting. <clears throat> when John wrote Revelation, he had a disciple in Smyrna at the time by the name of Polycarp. Now, if you studied church history, some of you guys may have studied church history. You may know that name. You're like, oh, I've heard that somewhere, Polycarp, yeah. Um, he would have been about 30 years old when John wrote this letter. Can you imagine being John in heaven? And God turns to you and says, now write to the church in Smyrna. And you're like, whoa, I know a guy there. I know several people there. Like, Smyrna, what are we going to say, Lord? I just got done writing Ephesus, and this I have against you. Like, what's going on in Smyrna? Like, did I miss something? You know, I, I know this really close disciple of mine. His name is Polycarp. John discipled Polycarp. He's his spiritual father. John is the Polycarp, so to speak. He's the one who, who raised him up and was teaching him and was showing him what life looked like, how to be a Christian, how to walk. I mean, he, Polycarp was with an apostle, living, learning, being discipled. What do your spiritual children see? 
What do your spiritual children see? Those who follow you or hear of your faith, do you have a faith to be emulated? Do they look at you and say, I'm going to be like that? Polycarp was watching John as John was following Jesus. Paul says to others, follow me as I follow Jesus. Imitate me. We should have that same mentality. As we grow as disciples, as we grow in faith, we should be saying, follow me as I'm following Jesus. Do we have a life that should be imitated, emulated? So Polycarp is there. He's about 30 years old. He would have he would have been receiving this, hearing of the 10 days, and he's leading this church eventually in the region. He becomes a bishop of the region. And Polycarp, it says in church history, would lead, would lead this church to have a powerful testimony of purity in the pollution of the culture. That's how they talked about it. This group of believers had purity in the pollution of the culture. They said, look at the world, and they lived for Jesus. They didn't live like the world. Well, Polycarp was martyred, but not during this time. Actually, he was martyred at the age of 86 years old, so it's sometime later. And so he's martyred uh, late in his age. So he was taken by the government, and it was interesting. He wasn't looking for martyrdom, but yet he wasn't trying not to get martyred. I mean, he, he had opportunity to get away. It said that as they first came for him, he left his household and went to a secluded place. And then the, the, the government came, the proconsul came and said, where is Polycarp? They arrested two people out of the household, a servant and a, a member of the household. And they said, if you don't tell us, we're going to kill you. And, the, and then because you are Christians as well, if you don't recant, we're going to kill you. And so one recanted his faith and said, I'll tell you exactly where Polycarp went. The other two also said, I won't lie. I'll tell you where he went. He's not here, and I'll tell you where he is, but I will not recant. And the church uh, here in Smyrna, when they're writing about this to the other churches in the region, they said both of those men went the way of Judas, meaning they were both killed anyway. Didn't matter if they recanted or not. They killed him anyway. And then they went to the next place where Polycarp was. And Polycarp heard they were coming. And what does he do? He opens the doors. He says, come in. He could have ran away. He could have gotten away. He knew that they were coming. But no, he welcomes them in. And he says, you know, instead of making this a big scene, you know, let me just feed your men. And he lays out a big banquet. And he says, eat as much as you want. Drink as much as you want. He said, just give me an hour to pray. And then I'll go with you. And he ends up praying for two hours. And during that time, the men are like, why are we arresting this old man? Like, he's feeding us. He seems really like... So anyway, the proconsul says, no, he's an enemy of the state. He arrests him, takes him to the arena where, where they have their games. And so he's in the center of this arena, and they're, and they're questioning him, and they're talking to him, and they say, deny Christ, recant, deny him. He says, I can't. And so I won't do it. And so at the end of that, the proconsul has a herald proclaim to the crowd that Polycarp confessed himself to be a Christian. And that guy goes, three sections. He goes over here and says, Polycarp says he's a Christian. And they're getting upset. And he goes to the next one. He says, Polycarp says he's a Christian. And they're getting mad. He goes to the third one. And it's like, Polycarp refuses. He says he's a Christian. And this is what the church writes. So in the martyrdom of Polycarp, this writing from the church in Smyrna, to the region, it says this. They report, the whole multitude, both of Gentiles and of the Jews who dwelt in Smyrna, cried out with ungovernable wrath and with a loud shout. This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the puller down of our gods, who teaches multitudes not to sacrifice nor worship. Then, well, they asked that he be thrown to the wild animals. This was funny. I was sharing this with Bob Andrighetti. And I said, they wanted to throw him to wild animals, but they didn't because the proconsul said, ah, oh, I've already closed the games. And Bob responded, ah, oh, government red tape. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't feed him to the lions. But then it says, they thought it fit to shout out with one accord that Polycarp should be burned alive. 
and the church at Smyrna, here's the point, was ready and able to suffer and die. The letter that they wrote to the other churches was actually a letter of encouragement, not to be, oh, poor us, we lost Polycarp. It was a letter of encouragement of how to die well for Jesus. If this be your calling, follow that example. And so they were ready. What what Jesus said to them, you have 10 days of suffering, you have persecution, you have poverty. I see it, and this is happening. It set them. They were ready. They were ready to keep pushing in. Verse 9, let me just read that again. It says, for I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So the church in the midst of persecution was also in poverty. Now the word here for poverty is abject poverty. So we have to remember, it's a very prosperous city. There's plenty of work. There's plenty of money. There's plenty of stuff. But yet the Christians are in abject poverty. When we hear that, typically we think of those, those economic situations of different countries or different villages and things in Africa where we're like, everybody's in poverty. Nobody has food. Everyone's starving. No, no, no. People are not starving here. People have jobs. People have money. They are wealthy. There's a lot going for them. It's the Christians who are in abject poverty through persecution. Jesus says, I see your poverty. So they had their goods plundered. They lost their positions. They lost jobs and work. It was an economic persecution as well as a social and a political persecution. And it wasn't because everyone was in poverty. It was because they dared to name Christ and to live for him. It's much like what Paul writes, Philippians 4, verse 12. He says this, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How can Paul say that? Because he settled in the first chapter this, for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I can, it doesn't matter my circumstance. I'm living for Jesus. And where the chips fall, that's where they fall. It doesn't change my relationship with God. It doesn't change my zeal for my Savior. And so the church has learned this. And with the death of Polycarp later, and by the way, there was 11 other brothers who had come to visit Polycarp at that time from the Church of Philadelphia, which we'll get to later in our list here, but they were martyred, martyred with him. They were killed at the same time. But with his death, the church says, and this is a quote, and it's not a complete quote because I just pulled out what is needed for this moment here. They say this, where the Lord will permit us to gather ourselves together as we are able in gladness and joy and to celebrate the anniversary of his martyrdom for the commemoration of those that have already fought in the contest and for the training and preparation of those that shall do so hereafter. What did they say? Well, it's for us to take note of for sure. We need to take note of what the church says. The church is pressing on in the midst of persecution. They say, wherever we can gather, whenever we can gather, we will get together with joy and we will worship and we will celebrate and we will remember those who went on in, ahead of us in the contest. I love that phrasing. They, they, were, they played the game. They went through it. They made it to the end. They ran the race that was set before them. And we will train and we will prepare to run our race that is set before us. We have this great multitude, this cloud of witnesses in our church and those who went well before us, showing us how we are to live. So the church decides we will press on in the midst of great persecution and poverty. And they had a powerful presence and testimony when the culture and Satan took as much as they could from them, even at times their very lives. Yet the power of the gospel is going forward. The, the lampstand was not put out. And notice that the lampstand's not put out. They don't have a building. When we think about the lampstand, it's like the lampstand at the bridge is at 701 Rivard Street. No. It's in you and me. It's us. 
the church who worships together in this community. We are the lampstand. And so Christ has encouraged them, has warned them, and he's pushing them to keep going forward, and they do just that. Their focus wasn't on their situation. It was on Jesus, the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. That's why his name is important. He's the first and the last. He was dead. He came to life. He's, he's all we need. We're focused on him. So Christ made them rich. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Christ has made us rich. Now, there's nothing inherently spiritual about having a lot of money, and there's nothing inherently spiritual about having no money or being in poverty. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about them having or not having material goods. So how does Christ say, you are rich? Well, Christ has made us rich as he has made them rich in the inner man, in the inner woman with a new birth. We collect treasure in heaven or blessings from God by living in Christ and with Christ. By living in Christ and with Christ in relationship. It's not just knowing and and acting it out religiously. It's having relationship with God, being in Christ and with Christ, how we are living. Then the blessings and the richness in heaven comes. Verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. The, the Stephanos crown. This is a, what an athlete would get for competing. And at the end of the race, if he won, they give him that, that wreath that goes on the head. And eventually, within a month, you know, it browns and the leaves start falling down. And, and you do your best to preserve it, I'm sure. Like, oh, I got to put it up on my wall or put it somewhere where it's not going to get jostled. And then it's like if I got to dust, it's like whoosh, real gentle because if I actually dust the thing, all the leaves are going to fall off. And, and when people come in, they're going to be like, this is my glory. This is my trophy. It's my trophy set, right? The, the Stephanos crown. And Jesus says, I give you a crown that will never fade, never perish. It is eternal. It is life. Even though this crown looks like it's living when they receive it, it will fade and it will perish. But I will give you a crown that will never fade, that will never perish. I give you the crown of life. New life. For those who endure, they get the victor's crown. And that's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through you, through you have, though, golly, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that in inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter is saying that we are, we are obtaining that victor's crown, that crown of life, that glory, that, that joy that is given to us as we persevere. What happens when we don't go for Jesus and we go for the world? Really neat uh, illustration from the Renaissance. There was a time uh, during the Renaissance, and of course the Catholic Church was flourishing at that time, and, and because of the way governments and culture and all that came together in Western Europe, and, and so the Pope actually had a friend come to the Vatican, and he's showing him the splendor of the Vatican, showing him all these different things. Look at the buildings. Look at how all of this has come together. Like, can you imagine, you know, it's like the time we live in, the church that was persecuted is now this glorious church. Look at all these buildings, all these things, and he's showing him the splendor of what, what is there at the Vatican, and so during the tour, the, the Pope turns to his guests and he says, we no longer have to say like Peter, who spoke to the lame man, silver and gold have I none. And the man replied to the Pope, he said, yeah, 
but neither can you say, rise up and walk. I would rather be a church filled with the power of God that transforms lives, that says, get up and walk, than a church who has gathered nice things and, and, and looks uh, like the world and lacks the presence of God. So we get this in verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So church, we're in an interesting moment in our culture. I mean, so let's, let's okay, what does Smyrna have to do with the bridge today? Let's, let's think about it. We're in an interesting moment in our culture today. This is some, some interesting times, as the fortune cookie says. In some ways, our culture is known for things that Smyrna is known for. We are known for education, the, the thriving of the arts, the sciences, medicine, the religions and spiritual atmosphere of our culture. It is thriving. And I'm talking about the West. I'm talking about America and more specifically, I guess, but not just Somerset. But look, we're a lot like Smyrna in many ways. There is, there is a lot that is looking like life and, and that there's blessing and there's money and there's jobs. And, there's, and even in this moment of crazy inflation, even in this moment where our, everyone's upset about the economy and how much you got to pay for gas today or, or, or the trips you're not going to take later if gas goes up anymore and stuff like that, even in the midst of all of that, we are a wealthy culture. We don't live in abject poverty. The poorest among us in our culture have more than those who live in abject poverty around the world. And you may say, well, what about those? And you can point to different, but there's, there's all kinds of programs and things to help and, and to give. And in other cultures, there's none of that. You know, we call them the social safety nets. There's none of that in real abject poverty in other parts of the world. Our culture, we have that. We don't know poverty as a country in this like we're talking here. We're very wealthy. But in the midst of that, we have seen faith challenged and spoken against, as well as faith being persecuted. We've seen clearly that our culture is at war right now with this idea of sanctity of life. And, and as far as fatherhood, we talk about fatherhood today, that has been demeaned for such a long time. And if you want to see what I mean by that, think back through all the TV shows you watched growing up. And who is dad? He's the doofus. He's the guy that they always make fun of. He's the butt of the joke. Our culture is not much different than Smyrna's in many ways. And in small ways, we can look out and we can compare it a little bit to Smyrna. We have heard of others being treated with contempt. We have seen people lose jobs. We've seen people sued, their businesses being shut down. We've seen some places where people have been put in jail over various charges or for various reasons because they're not in compliance with the government because of faith. So we see that, but it's, it's few and far between. It doesn't really touch us. So it's like, oh, that was just something I heard over there, or we should pray for that over there. But we don't really think about it here. So be aware that things in, in our culture may continue to change around us. I feel as if right now someone has pushed the snowball down the hill, and it's gathering speed and getting larger and larger. It's still moving. It's changing. It's not a stretch for, for me to think that our faith may be pressed as extreme, that, that normal, traditional, biblical values on personhood or on gender identity will be labeled as hate speech or violence and be able to be fined or, in, or put in jail because of it. It's not a stretch to believe that, that churches may face more and more political pressure due to a shift 
in the cultural, in the cultural mores. If we are alert, if we're alert, we will heed Christ's words in verse 10 where he says, do not fear. He says, don't be afraid of it. You don't have to look out there and start wringing your hand. He says, don't be afraid of it. Don't have anxiety over it. Don't worry about it. Jesus says, no, whatever will happen, keep pressing in. We don't have to be afraid, but we need to be ready. That's, that's what he's saying to Smyrna. He's saying, be ready. Be ready. This is coming and press in. So we need to be ready. We need to press in. Even if tribulation comes, or rather, I would think when tribulation comes, Jesus puts it this way, Luke 12, verses 4 through 7. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. I love that Jesus has these right together. Why? Because he says, as we think about the world, we tend to fear man and what man can do and the safety he can take from us and all the different things. He says, don't fear that. Rather, fear God. Live for God. And he says, now think about how God thinks of you. You're more precious than the sparrows. He provides for you. He knows the number of hairs on your head, and he cares for you. So live for him. Fear him. So church, that's where our focus is, on Christ. So my question is, what would you do? If all of this ended abruptly, <laughs> what would we do? Would we press on for Christ? Would you press on for Christ if, if you lost it all? Like if all of a sudden it all changed, could the bridge continue to be a light? Would we press on? Would we be seen as, as a, a force in our culture? Or would we just be that place where a bunch of people used to worship? And I don't know what happened to them. Listen, they didn't have a place in Smyrna and people knew that there was the church because those people were moving forward in their life with Christ and sharing Christ and proclaiming Christ, living for him, making him known, calling people to salvation. You don't need the location. You need the conviction. COVID showed us that pivoting in the moment is difficult I remember when it's just like, okay, everything's getting shut down. And then as pastors were all running around like, my hair's on fire, my hair's on fire. Like, what are we doing? You know, and we're like, and then you get those endless phone calls. When are we going to meet again? When are we all going to get together? When are we going to, and then you have those other ones. We're not meeting, right? Everyone's going to be masked, right? Everyone's going to get the vaccine, right? Everyone's going to, and you're like, ah. And you know, like we learned from COVID, it's hard in a moment to pivot. It's difficult. But COVID was a blessing. COVID didn't come with the persecution. There was a lot of persecution in different ways, but it didn't come with, with the persecution that, that I think is ramping up in these end days. We were given the blessing of COVID that it would make us aware that we need to be prepared before the next pivot happens. We need to be ready. We need to have our, our faith settled. We need to have ourselves as a church solidify saying, this is what will happen if they closed our doors today. We'd be like, fine, you can have a building. We're, we're still going to meet. We still have a way of living. We still have a way of sharing Christ. What will the church look like moving forward? So let us position ourselves to be more than conquerors. Jesus says to the one who conquers, they will not be hurt by the second death. And, and we are encouraged in the scriptures that through Christ, he's made us more than conquerors. So then let us Position ourselves to be more than conquerors, full of faith, not fearing what may come, but moving boldly forward into a lost world, preaching Jesus with or without those material comforts that can bless us or that hinder us as well. I'm going to leave you with Luke 12, 22 to 32. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father, we take this and say we want the king and the kingdom more than anything else. Jesus, you say, seek the kingdom and these things will be added. We see that. You took care of those in Smyrna in the midst of persecution and trial and abject poverty. Lord, you cared for them. You took care of them and you provided for them and they continue to walk and live and love you and continue to press on. So, Father, we, we want to be prepared. We want our hearts settled. We want our faces turned towards the Savior. We want nothing more than you. And if the world tarries on and on and we are blessed to have all of these good things, we praise you for it. But if the tribulation comes and, and times shift and things change for us of faith, then we bless you for it because we know that you are good. You care for us. Our Father in heaven sees us, blesses us, and gives us life, life eternal. So may we walk after you, Lord Jesus. May we prepare ourselves and train ourselves to receive that crown, that crown of victory, that crown of life, that you would be glorified and our joy would be made full. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping Him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.